afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Scott Lowe, and I am your host for the Full Stack Journey podcast. My goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Joining me today is Alex Ellis, and we're going to talk about serverless. Um, so, uh, hi, Alex. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Scott. Well, thanks for being on the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, serverless is a topic that I have a lot of people asking me about, so I'm super thrilled that we can spend some time um, talking about it today. Um, Alex, before we get into some of the questions and uh, see what sort of information we, should, we can tease out for our listeners, uh, why don't you take a minute to sort of just you know introduce yourself, tell the audience who you are, where you come from, what you're doing, uh, that kind of jazz. My name's Alex and I'm a developer and a software entrepreneur from the UK. I do a lot of open source work and most of the time I'm working pretty high up the stack in level seven, level eight, and sometimes going down as low as, low down as, as level four and playing around with TCP protocols and VPNs and things like that. What I'm probably best known for is my blog posts and writing on using containers, um, VMs, Docker, Kubernetes, and a series of open source projects that I've written or started. Um, and the main one, as we're talking about serverless, would be OpenFAS. OpenFAS is a community project that has um, over 25,000 GitHub stars now, quite a lot of interest. And we just celebrated the fourth birthday with a community um, back in December. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. And you also do, I think one of, one of the other big projects I've seen you working on is um, one called uh, Inlets. Is that right? Yeah, Inlets is the one that I think might be of particular interest to your, to your audience today. And that bridges the gap a little bit between application development, platform engineering, and lower level um, infrastructure. It's one of those projects that Either you use it as a developer to receive webhooks when you're doing local development and share your work with others, or you use it as a platform engineer to join clusters together, to federate different environments, and basically get something that feels like a VPN, but is much, much easier to set up and manage. Awesome. We may have to have you come back and spend some time talking about inlets, but uh, for, for today, we want to focus on the discussion around uh, serverless. So. Um, you know, there's lots of, you know, pundits, experts, whatever, um, that have, you know, tried to define serverless, but from somebody who kind of, you know, really deeply embedded in the space, like you are having worked so much on OpenFAS, what is your definition of serverless? Like, you know, talking to, you know, the audience here, primarily a bunch of, uh, you know, system admins, vSphere admins, network admins, those kinds of folks, you know, what would you, what or how would you describe serverless to, to that sort of audience? The way that I described it in um, a training course I wrote for the Linux Foundation introduction to serverless on Kubernetes was that serverless is a style of writing applications that means you focus more on your business logic, more on inputs and outputs, more on event routing and processing than you do on low-level parts of your platform, like whether you're running in a VM on bare metal or in a container, those kinds of things are no longer really your concerns. The closest 
sort of thing that we've seen in the past that people probably remember is Heroku. And this was a platform, probably one of the first serverless platforms where you come along and you have your code. Um, say whether you want a database or not, you deploy it and that's that. The system, and this is a SaaS, manages it for you. A little later on, we see AWS Lambda gaining traction, having its first users. And here they take the Heroku experience, they remove the build part. So now you're effectively no longer working with a Git repo, you're putting your code straight into a zip file and uploading that. They then will scale it for you, charge you per use, and allow you to connect into all sorts of events that they have in their system. Then around 2016, and also a little bit earlier, you know, from IBM with OpenWhisk, we saw a number of open source projects emerge because this model, it turned out, was actually not only popular, but useful for a lot of different things. And so a number of really strong serverless projects came about. And at one point on the CNCF landscape, we were tracking 60 of them at the height of it. And as that sort of faded out and, and people moved on to other things like service meshes, probably about five of the top projects hung about and we got one new one and they're all there to provide a serverless experience that that way that you can focus on your application rather than on the underlying infrastructure and also run on premises gotcha okay that's a that's a, a very good definition so you were talking about how some of the you know offerings the platforms sort of balanced out what are the you know, sort of the you know the the leading serverless or, or functions as a service platforms that are you know that you predominantly see today. In the course that I, I wrote, um, I did actually do some analysis on the CNCF landscape and on some of the projects, and um, rather than comparing them like for like, went over their best features and what they're known for and the style they've taken. OpenWhisk is one of the the older. Um, more mature, but also more complex projects that exist. And IBM and Adobe have spent a lot of time iterating on that. Um, that one came before Kubernetes and it ended up having to replicate um, some of the things that Kubernetes does, like service discovery, um, event routing, and things of that kind of nature. And so they went through a transformation to try and make it more Kubernetes-like. OpenFAS launched on Docker Swarm very early on in 2016 and quickly moved to Kubernetes, um, offering parity with both platforms. And then we saw things like Kubeless, originally from Bitnami. I'm not sure if that's still being maintained. Um, that one was using a, a similar approach to Lambda, where you drop some code somewhere and it's meant to just work. We've got other projects in there too. One of the more recent ones in 2018 was Knative, launched by Google. Um, the team have mostly moved over to VMware now and uh, working on that. Red Hat are also pretty involved in it. But out of all of these projects, OpenFAS is probably the only one that has really gained popularity with community and open source developers. As I say, we have 25 thousand GitHub stars now. Those are individual human beings that have sat down at the computer and said, this is interesting, enough for me to come back later. Around 300, I think maybe even 350 people that have contributed code into it. 
um, dozens of end user companies that have done KubeCon talks or written blog posts. Um, and so what I would say if somebody was thinking about adopting one of these projects is to go and have a look, think about what problem it is, what job you have to be done, take a look at each of them, see which suits your style, see which suits your needs, and, and try them out. Right? Because I'm not here to say use OpenFAS or use Lambda. Try them, see what works for you. It might be that over time those needs change and you may move from one project to another. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So before I go any farther, I do want to just make sure in your mind, serverless and FAS, are they interchangeable or should we be distinguishing them in some way? FAS means functions as a service. And it's really the idea that we have an evolution from PaaS. PaaS is that early form of solving a problem where you have folks, maybe like yourself, Scott, your infrastructure guy, but you are supporting developers. And maybe you're also a platform engineer, or maybe you don't have that in the organization. Developers need a way of deploying code consistently and having that managed perhaps audited, perhaps you need some compliance and governance on that. And PaaS was really the first shot at building that, such that some clever guy could worry about all of the infrastructure, and then the teams, the developers, would write their code in a certain way, and the platform, the PaaS, platform as a service, would manage that. PaaS is really just a, a more of a specialization of that, where we probably doing all of the same things that PaaS did, except we tend to look at the code as, as a function um, rather than a microservice or big monolithic app. You can deploy your microservices on OpenFAS. You can use Flask, Express.js, whatever you're used to doing. But um, a lot of folks like having small bits of code they can manage that can scale independently that they can get metrics on and track and perhaps even trigger from code um, and events. One example would be, let's say we posted this podcast to Hacker News. How would you know if that had happened? Maybe you're interested in, in how much of a reception you get there. Well, you could potentially write some code that on a scheduled basis, pinged Hacker News, did a quick search, and then triggered an email or perhaps dumped it into a database and later on once per day would send an email if there was anything in that queue. Those are the kind of things that a serverless approach is good for, but it can also be useful for, for remapping an entire website. Pretty sure it was the BBC that had gone pretty heavy in on serverless this year with moving big parts of their websites to CDNs and to um, AWS Lambda. So when we look at it, serverless is the category of computing, like cloud. It's a set of concepts and ideas that we, that we prescribe that focus less on the infrastructure and more on the code. You could have, well, some people claim you can have a serverless database. People say you can have serverless, you know, whatever. But a lot of the time, what they're actually talking about is SaaS. So I think there is a danger to say, if it's a SaaS, it's serverless. Really, there is some, there is some very different opinions here. If you're a, a cloud vendor who has a very large um, serverless product, 
selling cloud functions. You're going to push the characteristics of your product as a definition of serverless. So you'll say, don't pay for idle, that it scales to zero, that it can scale to like infinity. But that's not always important for every team. And then if you're coming from the K-native world or perhaps OpenWhisk, you're not going to be as interested in those things. You're going to be focused more on the application delivery, the reliability of a system, the fact that anything you deploy fits in this shape, in this square hole that can be managed in the same way. All of your deployments, all of your code can be managed in exactly the same way for logging, secret management, metrics, and scaling. And that consistency, well, the promise is that it make your job easier as an infrastructure guy. Gotcha. Okay. Just kind of just summarize there for my own sake and also possibly for the sake of uh, you know, the listeners, right? You want to think of serverless more as a, as a category, right? Um, a way of computing uh, because you're focused on these higher level concepts, these higher level constructs. You're not worried about, you know, okay, this VM or this server or this instance, you're worried about, um, you know, the, the architecture of your software and how these pieces work and more at that level. Um, and FAS would be considered an implementation of a serverless category or a serverless yeah, yeah. way of thinking. Yeah, that's that's right. And specifically for the, we're almost thinking of code as endpoints or transformations or a series of ephemeral predicates and pieces of code that are triggered by functions or by time and that together can be compounded and put into a workflow where suddenly the function that creates a PDF from some CSS and HTML on its own isn't particularly valuable to, to a business. But when you pipe that through um, the collection of customer details from the last month and that then gets emailed to the VP of revenue, then you can start to create some, some use cases and some workflows that bring back the promises of object-oriented programming, of being able to reuse code. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So I think that helps the listeners sort of put their head, you know, wrap their heads around it. And then going back to one of the comments you made about, you know, pushing serverless on all these other technologies and, um, you know, just because if you, if you take that definition of like, hey, serverless means I'm not worried about the servers, well then, you know, conceivably you could call RDS serverless too, right? But it's, you're not, it's, it's a little bit different. I, I don't know, I, I could kind of see the, the marketing spin of, of applying it that way, but I mean, from a technical perspective, it doesn't really make, make sense, at least to me anyway. The, the thing is that we sometimes in industry need marketing terminology to help us describe what a pretty con complex concepts we talk about cloud but these days nobody will ever expect that to be a literal fluffy nebula serverless in the same whenever i i come across some sort of pedantic um person on the internet saying that well there's still servers it's like well have you heard of public cloud let me tell you about it it's this droplets of rain in the sky you know a lot of the terms we use in our language are expressive and represent things that are abstract. This isn't the only one. And uh, I think it's like we're way past time to get beyond that and start looking at what 
what practitioners are doing with the technology and what they think. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, so you mentioned a number of, of um, sort of serverless platforms, most of which um, intended for on-premises. Uh, you mentioned OpenWhisk, um, you know, OpenFAS, which is the project that you've been working on, Knative, Kubeless, which may or may not still be around. Um, would you say these are all, you know, implementation aside, um, usage-wise, like sort of user experience-wise, would you say these are all roughly equivalent to sort of the, you know, Lambda, Azure Functions, Google Cloud Run type of services that the public cloud vendors are offering? Well, I guess we, we should make a distinction there. When it comes to AWS Lambda, up until very, very recently, that meant being tied down to some very specific um, constraints, only being able to use a certain amount of RAM, um, having to pay a lot more if you wanted to increase it, only being able to inv invoke your functions for a maximum of 60 seconds, and various other things, having a, a payload of something like 50 megabytes when compressed, or I don't remember if it's compressed or uncompressed, but things that basically were great when you were getting going, but then you could very quickly hit the wall with it. Those tended to work around these zip files, Google Cloud Functions, Azure Functions, AWS Lambda, they were all pretty similar. But the benefit to you as a developer was just like any other thing, like you mentioned RDS or say CloudFront, or some other product. I was looking, I was looking at how am I going to send emails to lists of people and there's stuff like MailChimp, $60 a month, but you don't have to maintain a server with Laravel or PHP and MySQL on it. Is it serverless? Is it a SaaS? I think the, the line blurs, but there was a very specific way of developing that. When it comes to CloudRun, CloudRun is really similar to OpenFAS and Knative in that we're building containers that have a certain contract. They say, um, HTTP on the port that we tell you, and then that's it. And that container can run anything. Um, if it's something like COBOL that I'm pretty sure doesn't have a HTTP server in its standard library, then OpenFAS has a little shim called the watchdog, and you can have that run instead. And every time a request comes in, it uses Unix pipes to marshal the request in and out, just like CGI bin. Then if you have an actual HTTP server, Express.js, you can run that. Or you might be using a function style where you're just writing a handler, but under the hood, it's still got a, a little mini HTTP service in it. So when it comes to Cloud Run, Knative, OpenFAS, they are interchangeable with the artifacts that you're building. With Lambda, they're not. And the same with Google Cloud Functions, these are older technologies and they have a very opinionated way of doing things. But to sort of chunk up a bit, the use case of I want to run some code when this event happens, that is something that you can do on all of them. But one of the things we're trying to cover with these open source projects is the ability of working with containers specifically and being able to just build some code and have it run anywhere. Gotcha. Okay. So that makes sense. So there are, you know, and, and this kind of goes back to your comment earlier around, you know, 
keep it, keep an open mind in terms of what you're using because your needs may change over time. So there are some, you know, sort of specific constraints around some of these offerings or, you know, around Lambda, Lambda or Google Cloud functions as opposed to Google Cloud run, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, like at least at a high level perspective or trying to understand them, having some code get triggered in, in response to an event, all of these would, would adjust that, would, you know, address that sort of very basic need, at least in the beginning. Yeah, so let's take an example, right? If, um, if I thought about how indie developers do their work, they generally don't have time to manage servers, do updates, um, to be on call if it dies in the middle of the night and they're asleep. So they may use Lambda and they may put up with the limitations in the development workflow, or they, they may even just get really used to them and become experts at deploying to Lambda. And these might be bits of code that are triggered when things happen, sending emails, provisioning servers, et cetera. When you come to something like Google Cloud Run here, a great use case would be you have a, a small API that doesn't need to be running all the time because it's very low traffic. And maybe it connects to one of Google's own um, products like a Firebase, you know, their data store. So when you get a request, Google Cloud Run will start the container. If it's not already running, it will run the code, connect to the, the data store, get the record back or update it. Now, both of those are great if you want to run on the cloud, but as soon as you want to run on premises or you don't want to run on Google Cloud, um, you can pick up something like OpenFAS. You can install it on your laptop, on a Raspberry Pi. You can install it on an EC2 instance. You can install it wherever you like on premises even as long as you have Kubernetes there, then you can write very similar code and very similar applications, whether it's in for internal use or external use, whether you have um, some compliance needs and need to run in a very specific location where there isn't a managed serverless available for you, or where the limits just don't make sense. We see folks turning up and they have a machine learning model that just won't load into the memory of something like Cloud Run. Or more recently, we see folks that are like, well, we want to deploy a serverless capability for our engineers or QA testers. We want to build it into our product. And obviously with the, the cloud-based ones, they are they're tied to one vendor and it doesn't always suit their needs. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. So Shifting the discussion just just a bit um, from a from a from a higher level perspective in terms of addressing the needs of developers and and or adding let's say flexibility in how software is deployed or executed in our environment, um, adding a functions as a service platform to your on premises mix um, of you know solutions and offerings makes sense, right? I mean, like you could have you know some some needs being um, addressed via, you know, hey, here's some here's some VMs, or you know, maybe it's a Kubernetes platform. Here's Kubernetes, and you're going to deploy it in in sort of, um, you know, the the I want to I don't know what term you the regular Kubernetes way, right? Um, yeah. But um, and then adding some yep. sort of functions uh, service, whether it be Knative or OpenFAS or whatever, on top of that to say, hey, there are some pieces of code that make sense to run this way because this is the the you know, the, the need we're trying to address makes perfect sense. On the other hand, though, if I look at this as um, 
okay, if I, if I focus more on sort of the cloud hosted offerings where I can push code to the cloud in, in some fashion, and, and again, you know, knowing the certain constraints based on what service I'm using, whether I'm pushing a container, whether I'm pushing a zip file or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and then not having to worry about any of the rest of that, um, then, then running all this infrastructure on premises to, to offer a service platform kind of doesn't make sense. Um, and I guess- It doesn't make I, sense in what context or for what purpose. And I think that's what it really comes down to. If you're happy, if your business constraints, your customers, your governance, your compliance, the whole works, um, makes sense on Amazon and you're a customer and you know their ecosystem, go nuts. But the market is telling us that there is a significant demand for on-premises and more importantly, open source and portable serverless. I, um, I, I, I can't really speak much to the news in the US. I, I don't particularly follow what's been going on there, but I know there's been some unrest and one of the platforms has been effectively turned off that was on Amazon. This is an example of why you may want a level of portability. It could be that we, we hear this killed by Google. Maybe Cloud Run at some point in the future will be killed by Google because it's not profitable, at which point you have a huge deployment on there that won't work on Lambda and now you're stuck. It may make sense to, at times, understand what the alternatives are and what the cost is to migrate off. At other times, I was working with a, a financial company in the UK. They were adopting OpenFAS um, or considering adopting it, and they were using Amazon completely. And then they had a government um, constraint that said, you need to also run on one other cloud, i.e. Google Cloud. And suddenly all these Lambda functions that they'd written needed to be multi-cloud. And this is a real use case. Right? They, they didn't have an alternative here. They needed something open source to be able to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, you know, as I sit here and think about this, um, if, if you are, especially with some of these solutions like OpenVAS and others that are Kubernetes based, if you're if you're offering Kubernetes to your developer community within your you know, within your company your organization, then offering a functions service is really like it's it's not anything more than what you're already doing. I mean, like if you're already managing servers, VMs, or bare metal, whatever the case may be, to provide a container orchestration platform like Kubernetes, then extending that to include some sort of functions offering is really nothing. Um, yeah, that, so that's how I see it, right? Specifically that way, if you're already um, providing a Kubernetes capability for your engineers, if that's being used, then what OpenFAS becomes, it becomes a syntactic sugar. It becomes a way of accelerating development, removing tough stones in the road, removing daggers along the way, and basically saying, right, well, we've now lowered the bar to write some PowerShell with this tool, put it in this Git repo, and it will run for you whenever you want. Whenever we have a new VM provisioned in vSphere, we're going to tag it for you. And suddenly you start to see that actually people that aren't engineers, um, application engineers, can write code 
uh, can copy and paste, can edit stuff. Your QA engineers can come in and run their automation tests. This is something we saw at Cisco in the UK. They were using OpenFast to allow their QA team to run end-to-end tests against hardware just by giving them a simple interface where they could paste some code in, ran in, I'm pretty sure it was still PowerShell. And then on top of that, there is a new version of OpenFast called FASD that's really probably great for this leaf node scenario. You're right at the bottom of the line and it's you don't need a MySQL that's HA in five regions and highly available. You just need a SQL Lite because that does the job. FASD is a version of OpenFast that just installs in a single VM. There's no infrastructure to manage around that. Completely stateless. And you can deploy the same kind of functions to it. And so then that thing that you needed for your vCenter to tag the VMs with the login name of who's created it or a self-service portal that you've created um, because somebody internally knows React, right? And they've written a portal. That can now be deployed and run by folks who who don't really know much about Kubernetes. Yeah, I could see that definitely opening up um, use cases and, uh, you know, sort of like how different classes of folks might take advantage of this, um, you know, this ability to have something happen when a trigger occurs, right? Um, so, yeah, I could see that potentially being very useful. Um, the thing that, that I wanted to do is because we've gone quite, we're going quite, conceptual and i just wanted to say a few use cases so that people that might be listening could go yeah actually we've got that problem at work well that makes sense to us you you read my mind alex i was actually just getting ready to say okay so this is all great but what are some example use cases that you know folks could do like and 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 i think it's clear from a application developer you know how this benefits them but what are what are some benefits that folks who are typically more to more platform engineer or infrastructure, okay. you know, admin. Yeah, I'm going to cover a few and I hope, you know, this is going to make folks lean in. So there's a company in the UK called Bulletproof. One of the things they do is they scan vulnerability scan, customer code, customer environments. They'll run things like Nmap against it and all the kind of CISO type of tooling that you, uh, some of your audience are going to be familiar with. They're able to take any one of those tools and using that watchdog I talked about earlier, simply containerize it and run it on OpenFAS, run it in the background without having to write any additional code, get the results back, generate reports for clients, run assessments. And being able to scale out um, in that way has been super useful for them. One of the other use cases we see is data scientists that have perhaps trained up a model that will detect if a customer is going to churn. Well, they can just simply take that model, pop it into a Python function, and then you can have that as part of your system, whether that's in production, running on Amazon or on-premises. You could even stream data from a, uh, a network camera, an Ethernet camera, into a function and have it run inference on there or object detection, and then save those images and put them into some other piece of code to, to take action on them. Something again down the security line is there's an open source project called Falco. Falco detects 
bad things happening on a system, so it's security-based, and it might be that you won't allow any of your VMs to enter a root shell. You just know it's something that you don't do and you don't want outside of a certain support time window. Well, Falco can detect that using open source rules and then invoke an open VAS function, which could then alert you. It could do a pause on that VM. It could forcibly log people out of it. And so you have a kind of um, action center and resolution that can be built. There are folks that just use open VAS for running websites because it's actually a pretty easy way of getting up and running um, and focusing on just writing code. Now, there was a guy that was using FASD at the First Baptist Church at, at Coralton. And what he did there is they have these um, live streams of their sermons because everything's live streaming now. If people text in, a function runs from Twilio, takes that SMS message and puts it into Slack. And then people that are in the admin team can reply in the thread of Slack and it will SMS that person back con contextually basically automating that whole process, which I thought was pretty interesting. What are some use cases you see and for that? We have Icon Scout. Icon Scout are based out of India, and they have a stock photography and icon product. But quite often, folks are going to need a, a very high-fidelity asset resized into 10, 20, 30 different sizes and formats. And their tool uses OpenVAS for that. And they actually, as far as I remember, moved off um, Azure Functions in order to do that. Live person is one that I think is particularly interesting. And we have a KubeCon video, so you can go and check that out later. They are doing chat for customers. So when you go on a website and there's something wrong, there's that pop-up window in the bottom, and you can start chatting to someone. What they do is they allow their customers to have custom workflows. So at the end of the the chat session, if somebody rates lower than three stars, you can have it email that transcript to that operatives manager, and potentially flag it up somewhere else as well. And these use cases go on and on. There's a company called RateHub in Canada, and they are actually an OpenFast sponsor as an end user company. So uh, thank you, RateHub. They do mortgage assessments and financial projections. Again, they have a whole bunch of tools I've written around OpenFAS, and they just find it really easy to develop and deploy functions that way. Surf out of, um, which is actually in Amsterdam, what they do is they collect loads of smart data from something called a green village. These are different IoT devices, and this green village is a way that vendors can test their product in a real living scenario, collect data from sensors, and then this platform provides it to scientists. And this list goes on and on. We've got bank in Paraguay and all sorts of other things. As an infrastructure engineer, I think an integration, the integration that you can do with something like vCenter or Hyper-V or, or maybe um, think of some of the on-premise logging and monitoring tools that you're using, what you can do is extend proprietary code. No way to, to do some of these things normally, but if you can write some code to trigger a function, you can then react on it and go back to the system and, and update stuff. So you can create a kind of um, closed loop around it and get more value, automate things that are hard. 
And so I think there's there's definitely a lot of different things you can do. Um, if you're having if you have a Kubernetes capability, take a look at OpenFAS on Kubernetes. If you don't, FASD might be an interesting project to kick the tires with. And like we said earlier in the call, Cloud Functions, Azure, uh, Google Cloud Run, they might be a good fit for you too. Got it. Thanks. That's a that's a wealth of examples for listeners to to think about how um, they might be able to apply um, something like OpenFAS or FASD or one of the other platforms to do you know that sort of thing. It's almost like this gives you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna engage in a bit of hyperbole here, but it's almost like it gives you sort of you know a, an infinite extensibility for platforms. I mean, as long as you can trigger a function then you can do just about anything you want to customize your monitoring platform, your logging platform, your alerting platform, you know, whatever the case may be, right? Exactly. Um, there's, all, there's all sorts of things here. And let's say there's no API for your vSAN or, or your, your network attack storage, but there is an API portal that you can log into. We could have a function that runs every five minutes that runs headless Chrome, does the login, takes the HTML, inspects it, maybe just uses a Python to scrape the page. And then you can use that to plot a chart, to update a database, a time series, build a Grafana dashboard. And one of the one of the things that, um, just referencing back to what we said at the beginning, um, we've done is create lots of developer tools that make that journey a lot easier, especially for folks that aren't Kubernetes savvy. Um, Arcade has 40 different apps in it and about 20, 30 CLIs that you can install with one command. So you could install OpenFAS, you could then install Nginx, install something to get TLS certificates, install Postgres. And then as the last step, if you're running on-premises, you could install Inlets Pro, and that would then get you the equivalent of uh, an application load balancer on the internet. You can start routing traffic into your on-premises environment. So all of these workflows I've tried to make really, really easy to get started. And then when things get more advanced and you're in production and you're under heavy load, again, there's very detailed documentation on tuning that. Uh, my company, OpenFAS Limited, offers support to end users. And we have some pro features like SSO, which would probably be very important for uh, an infrastructure engineer. Just have everything federated through Okta instead of sharing yet another credential for an internal system. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's awesome. So um, we're approaching the end of our time window here. So um, real quick, Alex, I wonder. Uh, you know, we've mentioned a lot of um, a lot of different you know products and projects and open source stuff. Um, if you were giving advice to um, you know sort of somebody who's maybe infrastructure centric right now, but wants to move up the stack, wants to begin to look at more of these things, where should they start in terms of? beginning their learning journey to begin to be ready to incorporate something like uh, OpenFAS or its equivalent into their environment? I think, first of all, if you're a technologist, you're gonna, probably going to love this. But if you're a pragmatist, as, as, I, as I am, I'm actually both of these things, it might not be something that's for you. And it may be that you need to wait for it to come to you via word of mouth or through a use case. Um, certainly, if you just want to try the tech, and I highly recommend that, we've got loads of guides, blog posts. Um, there's lots of different end user companies and 
community members using it. There's a Slack channel you can come and ask questions in. You can tweet to me. I'm very easy to find on the internet. Um, and then there's a tr the training course that I mentioned at the beginning, Introduction to Serverless on Kubernetes, which doesn't really focus too much on Kubernetes, but we'll teach you how to like resize images, change the colors of them, deploy stuff and get TLS certificates for it. That'd be a really good place to start. Okay, great. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Um, as we wrap up, any, any final closing thoughts you want to share with listeners? Any, you know, sage advice that you feel like they should have? I think just maybe what I said before is when I, whenever I um, have a consulting client, the first thing I try to figure out is what is the problem being solved and what constraints exist. And so often I hear folks come to me and they already have come up with a technical solution and they just want to help me to help them debug it. I wonder if perhaps this, this week in our work, when we see that kind of uh, scenario pop up, we can go, you know, what is the progress this user is trying to make? What is the business problem that they've got? They want to, they say, how can I run a container with a GPU accelerated Chrome? And you sometimes just need to roll back and figure out what's the job they're trying to do. They're trying to um, perhaps do a, a Chrome kiosk, and they've identified the only way they can do that is by virtualizing it on a server and streaming it, when actually maybe they need to buy a Jetson Nano that has a GPU in it. That is one of the things that I think I'm just going to keep with me the rest of my career is engineers come with technical solutions. They want you to debug it. But quite often, you need to chunk up and figure out what is the problem, what's the business we're working on. Very good advice. I think something that a lot of uh, uh, those of us who are, um, you know, technology enthusiasts, shall we say, they often get so caught up in the technology um, for the technology's sake that we can forget, um, you know, hey, look, there's somebody who needs to get a job done and we just need to focus on helping them get their job done, not on building some outrageously elegant technical solution. Sometimes, you know, simpler and faster is better, even if it's not the most elegant or most advanced solution we can possibly implement. Um, awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, uh, as we wrap up, uh, I want to just give you the opportunity to share sort of, you know, like social media um, contacts or, you know, websites or whatever uh, with the listeners in case they want to come find you and interact with you on the internet. Yeah. As I said before, I'm very easy to find on the internet. If you search Alex Ellis, you'll probably get me. Um, it's alexellis.io is my website, openfaz.com for openfaz. And we just launched a um, consulting service for companies that want to reach more developers and get more visibility on their products. Maybe they're going to market or they just need some feedback of what is it like from a developer's perspective to use our thing and where do we need to fix it? Awesome. Great. Um, listeners, I'll have links to uh, all of that in the show notes, as well as links to any resources that we talked about. So to make it easy for you to uh, begin your begin or continue your journey of learning across the full stack of technologies. Alex, thanks again for being on the show. Listeners, thank you for uh, joining us, for listening. We are so grateful and thankful to uh, have you as part of our community. Um, if you do get the opportunity to uh, give us some feedback on iTunes or Google Play Store or Stitcher or wherever you happen to subscribe to the podcast, we'd certainly appreciate that. It also helps us reach new listeners. 
uh, show notes for this show and uh, links to the audio will be available on the packetpushers.com uh, website uh, or packetpushers.net, excuse me. And uh, we just uh, hope everyone uh, has a great day, evening or morning, whatever the case may be. And uh, uh, thanks so much for listening.